Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bêche, meaning digger. Hello Cricket Badgers everywhere, welcome along to another edition of the Cricket Badger Podcast and a special welcome to our visitors from down under. I know we get regular listeners from Australia and uh, even more relevant to you today because we're searching for the hashtag Goat Cricketer Australia. We've done the votes for England, Sari and Botham won that one. We've done the votes for India, Sachin Tendulkar won that one and we've just completed the votes for West Indies, Sir Garfield Sobers, the victor in that poll. But we now move along to England's Ashes enemies, the Australians. And I tell you what, you go through the records, you go through the names, and there is a plethora of potential candidates for goat cricketer amongst the Aussies. And don't forget as well, the top four from this vote will qualify for the world event. When we finish doing all the various countries, we're going to put the top four from each of those countries into a grand final around the world and they will compete for the greatest test cricketer of all time. That is going to be rather interesting because we've already got some very tasty cricketers qualified for that event. Thank you for tvsportsblog.com for sponsoring the podcast. Give them a follow on Twitter as well at tvsportsblog. But to take me through the Australians today, I'm joined by a man who you will know the, the words of. You'll have read his writing. You will know the stats of, because he's uh, reinvented himself as a, a statistician. You will know his face, and you will know his voice from his appearances on Talk Sport and various other channels. Runs his own uh, podcasts and does some terrific videos on YouTube. We mentioned one of those in the early part of this chat, because before we get on to the greatest Australian cricketer, we talk a little bit about COVID and the ability of cricket to play behind closed doors as well, which I'll cut that out as well and put it out as a separate thing. I think it's worth listening to that chat too. We're all desperate to get cricket back. Of course we are. It's got to be done safely. I think Jared and uh, myself, we share the same opinion on whether that's possible in the short term or not. And this chat goes on for quite some time because honestly, I kind of facilitate these chats, but Jared's the expert on the the Australian side of things. I've got my five nominations. He's got his five. So I I stick up my five and I I say a little bit about them because I'm a big fan of each of the five. But I also wanted to make sure that we got enough of uh, Jared speaking about them too. So we're going to put this one out over two parts. Sometimes think that if you put one out that's an hour and 20 minutes long, 
people kind of look at them and they think, ah, I'm not going to have the time to listen to that. But if you put out two that are 40 minutes long, people go for it. So that's the plan anyway. And hopefully that you buy into that and you listen to these two podcasts because well worth it. Because Jared Kimber, excellent guest on this edition of the podcast, told me a lot of stuff that I didn't actually know about the Australians too. So if you, like me, have a, a more than a passing interest in the Australian greats of yesteryear, stay tuned because you'll probably have your knowledge base increased as well, because Jared uh, really on song today on this uh, edition of the Cricket Badger podcast. Once we've uh, stuck this podcast out, I will add 22 to the names, the 10 names that we talk about today. We'll stick them into a draw of 32. They'll go into eight pools of four, then they will qualify into four pools of four, into the quarterfinals, into two pools of four, into the semifinals, and then into the final four, where we will finally get the vote to find out who is the hashtag greatest Australian cricketer of all time, the hashtag goat cricketer. The top two qualify from each of the polling votes. It'll be exactly the same as the ones we've done for the other three nations. And thank you for your comments on those as well. I know a few of you, probably even more so during lockdown, have really enjoyed the polls and the discussions and comparing eras, etc. And hopefully this Australian one will give you a little bit more to think about and you'll enjoy this one just as well. So enough of me yakking. You don't want to hear me yakking and doing a very long introduction. Let's get into chatting to Jared Kimber about, first of all, COVID-19 and then hashtag goat cricketer. Who is the greatest Australian cricketer of all time? It's that Badger style. Welcome to the podcast for the first time, Jared Kimber. How are you? Uh, very good. Thanks for having me. It's a strange uh, time that we speak in. And uh, how are you finding lockdown? How are you finding life at the moment? Because we should be doing, well, we should all be doing other things and watching cricket at the moment, shouldn't we? Yeah, uh, I, it's weird because I spend so much of my time uh, in my life away and traveling and, and around. So for me, last month has been with my kids and they haven't been able to run away and I haven't been able to run away. So we've been locked in the house together. So it's it's actually been quite quite good, quite quite a lot of fun. But yeah, you know, obviously from a professional point of view, uh, I, I think almost overnight I realized I was going to miss out on three or four months of work and it might be seven or eight or nine or ten months of work. Um, so, you know, that that's all a bit strange. But uh, as far as, you know, being locked in my house, I don't spend that much time in my house. So I'm quite happy to spend uh, spend a little while with my family at the moment. Well, I've been throwing myself into doing podcasts and we've had similar chats on, on the various podcast issues. And although we're very kind of scared about coronavirus and although we're kind of very conscious that other people are going through uh, atrocious times at the moment, there are some quite pleasant things about being locked down. The kind of pace of life has suddenly slowed down and it's made things uh, a, a little less hectic, hasn't it? Yeah, it, it, you know, I think from, from, a, from a sort of emotional standpoint, if we in our lives if we have had the opportunity to sort of have a staycation, you know, for a long period of time, it's probably a good thing the way that we live our lives. So, uh, you know, these are for hor- horrific reasons, and obviously, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have died, and a lot more have got very, very sick. Um, our friend George Bell got very, very sick. So, you know, it, it, it struck quite close to home. I've got a asthmatic mother back in Melbourne who's beyond seventy. She won't like me um, saying that, but she is. And so, you know. Even when you factor in those things, there is certain that there's a I don't know you know I spent three hours playing Monopoly with my with my boys yesterday, which was horrendous. But uh, you know that's the sort of thing you don't really get time for that much in in everyday life because they've got you know cricket tr- practice and football practice and tennis and swimming and you know piano and whatever else that they're doing plus le- playing with Lego and you know suddenly you have you have options to do all those sorts of things and the time to be able to do it so it, it, it's a lot of good fun i think as you know even if it is a horrendous time for humanity 
you know, I, I think that oh, on a sort of more personal level, um, as long as you're not and you or your loved ones aren't, um, you know, stricken by it, it, it probably uh, probably gives us the chance to recharge a little bit, I suppose, is the best way of looking at it. About five days after George, uh, I was going to say came out and said that he had COVID, but I'm not sure that's quite the right phrase. But the, I, I was struck down with it as well. I, I was horrible for about two or three weeks and it was not pleasant at all. So uh, hopefully everybody out there stays safe and avoids it if they can. Um, I was going to introduce you, Jared, as uh, I was going to try and go through your kind of CV Kind of journalist. Well, that might take a while. I mean, you've done loads of stuff, so I kind of gave up really and thought, well, we'll just we'll bring it out in conversation. But one one of the things I wanted to ask you was, a filmmaker was going to be one of those um, really good kind of cricket documentary that you brought out. Are there any plans to do any others? I mean, obviously in lockdown, it's quite hard to do that. But are there any plans on the horizon <laughs> to do anything else? I actually, I, was being, I did a project for ESPN on the history of Crick Info because it's a really fascinating story about how it came up and. You know, you've got the fact that Mick Jagger invested in it. And at one stage, it was the you know, second biggest website on earth. Um, it was offered to the ICC for free. And they said they didn't want to be involved with it. Uh, all, all these sorts of weird things. Not to mention that a lot of things that Crick Info did were first on the internet because they were so early um, in doing those sorts of things. So I've done that, but I'm not sure where ESPN is with it. Um, it may not be quite as... Uh, I mean, it doesn't mention ESPN, but obviously because ESPN owned Crick Info, they may not be as happy with the, the, the style that I've gone with. But that's the only sort of other long-form documentary that I've made in, in recent time. And I saw a, a little YouTube video that you did the other day, which kind of hit home to me. Cause it's what I've been trying to say on Twitter, but my clumsy words in the characters that you're allowed hasn't quite got it across as well as I think your video did it. I mean, it's quite a, a quirky little style, obviously. Nice graphics as well. Congratulations on that. But the, the, the ability of cricket to play behind closed doors... It just, it doesn't feel to me as if it's the right thing to do. But if we don't do that, cricket is massively compromised, isn't it? The future of cricket is really up in the air at the moment. Yeah, I think there's there's almost two different conversations to be had. I think the first one is that it doesn't matter if it, you know, I, I, I took a really close look at baseball's original proposal, the Arizona proposal, and it just fundamentally would not work. And it's the same with what Rugby League was trying to do in Australia, and it's the same with what the Premier League wanted to do. And then, obviously, uh, the ECB came out with their plan. Um, and I understand all this because a lot of my friends are, you know, administrators and professionals who work within sport, and they are desperate for this thing to come back for many reasons. Some purely personal, you know, they need money. Uh, you know, a lot of my friends have been put off work, um, myself included. It is a very tricky situation when it comes to that. And those boards are at home, and their jobs are to make sure that cricket is running or that football is running or rugby league is running, whatever the sport is. That is their job. So they're trying to work it out. Then the other side of it is uh, it's almost impossible to do any of this before we have a vaccine. Uh, It it seems like uh, from the outside looking in um, that we've done, you know, by locking down in so many different countries, we've actually started to fix this. If we start to open these sporting events up, there are so many things that you can't stop, that you can't um, be involved with and you can't police correctly. I just don't see what the point of, of bringing sport back is if it's actually going to spread the virus in any way. And I don't see how it can't. And then, you know, when you go down to the sort of, you know, the third phase of that is cricket itself. It's like we can't sanitize the ball. Uh, we can't stop players from being close to each other. Uh, we probably, like baseball are talking about if they come back having digital umpires. I'm not sure if cricket is quite ready techno- technologically for digital umpires yet out on the field. I could be wrong, and we might be able to work out how to do that. But all those little things, and the fact that 
you know, India, England, and Australia can afford some of these things. Most of the other world, rest of the world can't. <laughs> you know? So I, I think there is just a lot of things in cricket that maybe haven't been thought about a lot. And I know there's a lot of us, and I had a very close friend very emotionally send me an email about that video and go, but we just have to play cricket again. And I was like, I'm just not sure we have to. Um, I think we have to make sure that the world is safer and a better place. And there are a lot of things within cricket that I'm not sure that we're going to be able to overcome in the short term. And, and it's also, it's just little, so many little cricket um, things that I don't think people have thought about. Like if we have a, you know, if you have a basketball game and somehow someone, um, we find out that someone in the arena, so let's say there's 400 people in the arena to get the basketball game up and running. And someone in the arena um, tests positive and they don't get the result until the game's halfway over. You can stop a basketball game there and come back and finish it a week later. You cannot do that with a test match. You can't really even probably do it with a T20 game because the pitches will be so different. Um, and so little things of cricket. It's, it's a really, really interesting subject. I think at the moment we're sort of falling into two camps of people who are saying, let's just make sure the world is a better place. And other people are like, let's just make sure that, that you know people have a distraction from what's going on at the moment. And I don't think either of them are, are wrong, but I think on a practicality point of view, there's a lot out there that needs to be thought about. And to be fair to the board, you know, someone from board after that video went up, um, contacted me and said, you, you know, your video could have been an hour long with the amount of things that we don't know how to, uh, you know, that we don't know how to handle. And, and um, you know, sadly, that's the case. Yeah, it's, it's a head and the heart thing, isn't it? I mean, just like you, my work is completely dried up because of coronavirus and I, I want to see cricket because I love cricket and that's mm. the part of the reason we, we live for the summer so we can go and watch cricket. But ultimately, we're talking about human lives and sport, I, I think, despite the fact that we all think it's massively important and it is important, it's a social thing, isn't it? It's it's um, not as important as people's lives out there. And there were two things that came up in your video that... Um, I've been thinking about as well that, you know, when you have a, a cricket match on, you need the emergency services. Do you need an ambulance mm. there? You need, and that's taking away from the hospitals and the, and the, the great work that they're doing. And the, the other thing that I quite liked as well is that if you have a, a squad there, how many people do you need in the squad? Because if all of a sudden one goes down, two go down, three go down, how many bowlers do you need there? Because you're going to basically, you're potentially going to get through people, aren't you? Yeah, no, I mean, you're right. It, you know, all those sorts of little things that I don't think people have, you know, properly looked at, and some of the boards have, but but not 100%. And, you know, if there is an injury, what happens? And if it's, you know, they're not going to have an X-ray machine, most probably, at these rounds. They're not going to have, you know, uh, MRI machines and things like that. If players need those sorts of things, they have to go out of uh, the lockdown area. And straight away, do you have to restart? You know, does that mean, the, you know, does that mean that player is out of the game? All those sorts of little things. Um, it, it, it's interesting. You, you talk about how um, important sport is. I'm doing something for Talk Sport at the moment, a, um, a radio series for them on, you know, does sport matter? And, and you know, there are so many facets of sport that are so incredibly important, like from social uh, reasons, from tribal reasons, spiritual reasons. It's replaced religion in a lot of ways. We, I, I, you know, talk to a priest. Uh, we, we also talk to a psychologist who said if you track the rise of sports, it's almost overlapped beautifully with the decrease in wars around the world. Um, you know, there's all these, you know, and that's not even mentioning the, the health benefits of playing sport and the health benefits of watching sport, weirdly, which we came across as well. So there's all these little things from sport. There's no, no doubt that it's important. But the one thing we kept, sort of kept coming back to in that, in that series is the fact that it may be important. It's just that other things are more important. Yeah, you, you, can, you can play a test match 12 months later. You can't bring somebody back from the dead, can you? And that's ultimately the bottom line. 
Yeah. The only other thing, uh, I mean, you can see why administrators, I've worked in cricket and I've worked outside of cricket, and you can see why administrators are absolutely desperate to get some revenue because cricket isn't a rich sport. Cricket is a, a, a sport which is, is played um, very much with, with money in mind. I mean, I know a lot of people out there have rose-tinted spectacles and say that shouldn't be the case, but money is massively important in this modern day and age. And a year without revenue, potentially more, um, if, as you say, it might, we might have to wait until a vaccine, and that could take a couple of years. That is going to put cricket clubs out of business. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's one of those really interesting things, that, you know, when, when you look at the sort of the finances. I think a lot of the cricket boards, and I think a lot of the counties are probably uh, involved in this too, um, uh, they've they've been living kind of right at the edge of them uh, of of their uh, their available funds for a long time. The edge of the means, sort of, you know, right there on, on the edge. And if anything bad was going to come along, and it, you know, it could have been anything. Who who knows what it could be? Um, but if anything like this was going to come along, you could see how it was going to fall apart. I remember having a conversation with one, not one of the big three boards, but someone sort of a major player at one of the other um, test playing nations. And he was saying, we, we have to do this because we have to catch up with, you know, Australia, India and England. And I was like, you're never going to be able to catch up with those sports. Um, India has, the BCCI has, I would assume, anywhere between 5 and $10 billion of, 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 of money. Cricket Australia and, and the ECB, even when they, you know, lose money, they make so much more money on big series and on TV rights than anyone else does. Um, and these other boards just don't make it, and yet they're trying to spend at a similar rate. And uh, I think it might have been, the, I think it might have been when India decided not to tour South Africa, or maybe said they were going to not tour them at one stage. And it, you know, South Africa had to put off stuff. And if that's the case, I think you're in a position where you're not quite living correctly with the money that that, that you have. And I think cricket's been doing that for a very, very long time. Um, and it, it, as you said, it's kind of it's kind of a sport without a lot of money, but near a lot of money. Um, and unfortunately, it hasn't worked out a way to make money for everyone. And because it had this huge professional boom, basically the last 15 or so years, you know, you have these huge support staff. So I don't know how many people work at the Oval, for instance, um, but it feels like 1.3 million people, uh, you know, work at the Oval in all these different jobs. And I always thought that there was a chance that, you know, and I thought the big problem would be that eventually cable TV, the market of cable TV would crash before the streaming market uh, was making enough money. That's where I thought cricket would, would, would have its big problem. But yeah, all the way down to amateur clubs and, you know, uh, I've already talked to some people in, in amateur sport, they're already really struggling. And uh, the things that we haven't thought about, we've just had women become professional for the first time. Yeah. You know, England were looking at making, I think, 50 women professional. Australia's just made 100 women professional. Um, and we're not talking about big wages, what the women are, are being paid either. So you're suddenly at a point where you've got all these players professional. What's going to happen there? Like the Brazilian Cricket Association just made their women professional. The first first team, um, that the sort of first country that's ever made their women professional before their men. You know, are they going to be able to afford to keep them on? You know, little, little things like that. So there's, there is money in cricket, and then, but um, I'm just not sure if people were using it as wisely as they could have. And it certainly wasn't being um, uh, kept for a rainy day. And this is a hell of a rainy day. It's absolutely torrential, isn't it? And going back a few years, I mean, I, I used to work as the media manager at Yorkshire, and I was made redundant at the end of 2010. And this isn't a knock at Yorkshire, because all clubs are in exactly the same boat, but... 
We had the, I don't know if you remember, the Australia-Pakistan game at Headingley, and it was not a success. Yeah. They didn't sell the tickets they anticipated, and all of a sudden the budgets were stretched, and uh, they decided they had to make, um, I think, six or seven people redundant. And as you're not a, a bean cruncher as a, as a media manager, you are seen to be surplus to requirements. So I was, uh, I was let go at that time. Um, Yorkshire's still very much my club. I'm certainly not knocking Yorkshire for it, but every club runs like that. You, you kind of, mm. I saw Mark Arthur the other day, the Yorkshire chief executive, he was saying, you know, you, your rainy day budgets are for kind of like 80% of maybe budgeted revenue. They're not for zero revenue. And that's the thing, isn't it? That all of a sudden, it's not just a bad year. This is a, a zero year where nothing's coming in. They've not sold anything. They can't have any concerts. There's no social events going on in the, in the various suites around the club. This is absolutely, you know, you said rainy day. It's torrential. It is floods. It is, it is horrendous. Yeah. And, I'm not sure, like, I, I don't think, uh, well, I don't think cricket has ever, I suppose the best way, the best way to explain it is, I think they have been mortgaging their future over and over and over again for a very long time. And I'm not sure what potential payday they were thinking of, but you only have to look at all these T20 leagues. Like the CPL last year couldn't really find owners. Uh, they were in, in dire straits. Um, you know, the European League never even went ahead. Sri Lanka have had a league once that didn't work. Um, South Africa have already cancelled one of their leagues. You know, I, I, people have been hoping that T20 is this huge cash cow, and it hasn't really been a cash cow so far. Even even the Big Bash doesn't make a fortune uh, at the moment. It might end up being um, where Cricket Australia make their money. So cricket has kept pushing itself into leagues, into professionalism, um, into you know, um, you only have to look at the the, the the staff that they have in some of those um, counties. You know, a lot of the staff have nothing to do with the playing um, arena. A lot of them to do with marketing, to do with corporate events, uh, you know, all these other people out there. And, and what, it, what, what basically happened is you have to keep getting more and more money into that system. And I was, I was that, as I said before, I wasn't quite sure if that's where we were going when we go into the, the new streaming age. And cricket's been way behind on the streaming age. Um, you know, why cricket.tv isn't working yet, I don't understand. But, you know, ICC have owned that for quite a few years now. Um, but we've, we're already behind on, on that curve. And cable TV is now not as strong as it used to be. You know, I've worked for Crick Info for years. I mean, you only have to look at the amount of people not uh, renewing their ESPN um, uh, accounts in America to know that w- what's coming next. And, you know, then on top of that, you put something like this. Um, you know, perhaps, uh, hopefully in the future, if we can save as much cricket as possible, especially the smaller clubs, we can save as much as possible. Hopefully in the future, we might think about these things a little bit more. But at the moment, almost the money was just hand to mouth so much in cricket. And uh, um, sadly, it just doesn't really work that way. I think that was the, that was the case in 2010 in Yorkshire. You, you have a good year, so you start spending it. You, you appoint a few more staff and everything. Then the year afterwards isn't quite as good. And all of a sudden, you've got to cut your cloth accordingly. And cricket needs to be a little bit more even keel than that. Cricket Badger Podcast is brought to you in association with tvsportsblog.com. Give them a follow on Twitter at tvsportsblog. Excellent sporting content. It's well worth a look and give them a follow on Twitter at tvsportsblog. I keep having to yes. try and stop myself calling you Gerard because I listen to talk sport and uh, Gareth Butter <laughs> used to call you Gerard all the time, didn't he, on that uh, that commentary? But Jared Kimber, um, let's get on to the Australian matters ahead. The hashtag goat cricketer. You're a man that's come from Australia. You're living in London now. 
heart very much still in Australia, though, I imagine? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm Australian. <laughs> um, uh, I love London. Uh, it's a great city, but I don't consider myself English or anything. My job, essentially, over what, almost 10, 12, 13 years now, has been to write about global cricket. So I'm probably not the, you know, the Australian fan I was in 2003 who went to the World Cup with an Australian flag on the back of his head. You know, those sorts of things have probably changed. But uh, when Australia win key events and I'm there, it's still, uh, you know, very, you know, the fan in me comes back out. Usually pretty good at not doing that in general. Being an Australian, as for the first part of my life, is the sort of cricket that I was interested in, the sort of cricketers that I was interested in, all came out of Australia. It's probably, you know, uh, thanks to my love of Pakistan cricket and then eventually, you know, the global game, that that's moved on a bit. But it's still... I think I still think in a very Australian way. When I put it this way, when I play club cricket, no one's confusing me for an English player. <laughs> right. Our task on this podcast is to nominate five Australians each. We're looking for the greatest of all time. Comparing eras with all of these things is always a, a tough task. But you're going to nominate five. I'm going to nominate five. And as you're the guest on this podcast, I'm going to allow you to go first. Who will be your first nomination? Uh, Keith Miller, uh, who I think is incredibly underrated. Uh, Australia haven't had many great all-rounders, and I think when you look at it, he he has to be in you know the very top uh, list of all-rounders that have ever played the game. I think because of the attitude and the the sex symbol status and you know sleeping with the royals and all that sort of stuff, he was almost maybe his cricket has been um, downplayed a little bit. But you talk about someone who was good enough to bat number four in a great Australian team and uh, was an opening bowler with an average, you know, not much above 20. So, you know, it was like he was playing under-16s cricket. He was that good. Yeah, you, look, you look at his, uh, his uh, record, pretty decent, isn't it? As an all-rounder to, uh, to average, just over 20 with the ball, as you say. Handy with the bat too. And he's got the looks, hasn't he? he? You know, if he was around as a modern-day cricketer, he would be uh, on a few posters. Yeah, well, he was, he was, you know, there weren't that many early sex symbols sort of in cricket. Uh, you know, there were some famous people. I think the word megastar... There, there aren't many sex symbols in cricket full stop, are there, really? Let's be honest. Well, that is fair. Um, you know, there aren't many Imran Khans and um, and, uh, and Keith Miller's out there. But there's been a couple. But I think the word megastar comes from cricket. And it wasn't. I don't think it was used for WG Grace originally, but I think it ended up being used for him. So we had a lot of big stars in cricket well before, you know, the global game. But I think Keith Miller was, you know, one of those people. I think there's, I can't remember, it might be Mihir Bose's book on him or one of, the, uh, one of the earlier books written on him, maybe in the early 60s. And there's the whole opening chapter. He's talking about like a woman in, in his office and how she said, I'm just not going to watch cricket anymore now that Keith Miller's not playing. So I think we've, we've kind of forgotten how famous and how big he was at that time. And he, he was a phenomenal cricketer. There aren't that many cricketers who are genu- you know, genuinely can be picked for their batting or bowling. Like even Ian Botham, you know, I'm not sure he would have been picked for his batting. Imran Khan for most of his career wouldn't have been picked for his batting. Guys like Kapil Dev and uh, Richard Hadley, really handy batsmen rather than being picked for their batting. Uh, You know, Sean Pollock's probably another one. Whereas I think you could genuinely say that for a good period of his career, Keith Miller was in the top six batsmen in Australia and the top four bowlers without a doubt. Um, the interesting thing about him is that he didn't really seem to care that much about batting. Um, and the fact that they batted him at four, he was quite cavalier with the way he batted. And, you know, it used to drive Bradman absolutely spare that, that Miller wouldn't just nug it down. So basically, I didn't mean to use nugget, his nickname there, but essentially, you know, with, with Miller, you had a guy that if you needed an 80-odd in a really dire situation, Miller would get you the runs. But if he went in and the score was, you know, two for 300 and he didn't care, he'd just hit the ball straight up in the air. 
which which makes him a really fascinating cricketer. And I think it's also, had he ended up with a batting average over 40 and a bowling average under 25, I think he would genuinely be in the in the frame to, you know, with Sobers and uh, Callis. But because he didn't really, he wasn't that sort of person, you know, and he'd been through the war. He was also, I don't know how much people know about him outside of Australia, but he was also a brilliant Aussie rules player. And when he was younger, before he grew, he was also a very good jockey as well. So he was a proper all-rounder in that he flew planes in the war. He, he played a professional uh, version of football. Uh, he was a jockey. And he also went on to be one of the best cricketers uh, of all time. You know, just a phenomenal player. And, you know, he was in that era where it was easier, I think, to be an all-rounder. I think for someone like Ben Stokes now, you'll see that the England will start limiting his bowling because they want his batting to last longer. They'll just use his bowling. Whereas in those days, you know, uh, Sobers used to bowl 40 overs a game. Uh, there's no way if you had a talent like Sobers now, you'd be making him do the donkey overs. <laughs> but that's, that, you know, and Callis is a perfect example of that. Callis only bowled 20 overs a game because South Africa was quite clever. Because Keith Miller was a frontline batsman and a frontline bowler. And those things just don't exist anymore. So for me, just an incredible, incredible player and beautiful to watch. Everyone who watched him, you know, he was a fast bowler, genuinely fast bowler. And uh, loved hitting the ball. There's a great famous photo of him just slogging the ball across the line. It looks like a slog sweep before we even had that phrase. You know, full extension of the bat. Uh, he must have just been an incredible uh, force to watch. Well, the first word on his ESPN Crick Info bio is flamboyant. And anybody that is flamboyant is always going to have lovers and always going to have people that admire them. And he, and he lost his first years, didn't he? Because of the Second World War, he was, what, 20 when, when war broke out? So some of his, yeah. uh, his early best years were probably denied him as well. But to end up with nearly 3,000 test match runs at uh, nearly 37 and 170 wickets at 22.97. I think he is a very good start to this hashtag goat cricketer for Australia. He goes in the hat and he will certainly be in that vote. Let's get on to my first nomination then and I'm going to be massively predictable if this man doesn't get into the final four if this man potentially doesn't win hashtag goat cricketer for Australia I will be absolutely amazed none of us are old enough to have seen him play or the very few are still around that will have seen him play it's we've relied on Pathé news footage we've kind of read the books where we've heard about him with a, a stump and a golf ball hitting it against the, the wall of his house as a kid but Don Bradman is my first nomination you, know, you don't get any bigger, do you, really, in terms of, uh, as we said, hard to compare eras. He played in a completely different time to the likes of Coley and uh, you know, the Pontings and the rest of them that uh, are ruling the roost these days. But Don Bradman, to average 99.94, it's even better, I think, that he actually didn't quite average 100. The, kind of the story of him going out at the Oval needing to score, was it 4 to uh, average over 100 mm. and not making it? actually makes it an even better tale, doesn't it, in the end, that he just didn't quite get to a 100 average. But nobody's come anywhere near that since. And he's just absolutely out there on his own at the top of that tree. He's just an absolute legend of the game. There's no denying it. He's right up there at the top of the tree. And Jared, in Australia, do they still... I mean, I know that there's Bradman days and all sorts, aren't there? But is he still kind of revered as such, you know, all this time after his retirement and death? Yeah, I think I don't think it's ever going to go away. You've got to remember that he's an incredibly important part of Australian history in a way that someone like Rod Laver isn't. Um, so Rod Laver is almost as you know, had Rod Laver um, played, you know, um, uh, the all the tennis opens for the whole amount of his career, he might have ended up winning fifty or sixty um, Grand Slams in tennis. Uh, Rod Laver was that much better than everyone else, but. Rod Laver did it in a time when Australia was moving forward as a country, whereas part of the appeal of Bradman was that he did it during the Great Depression. 
when you know Australia didn't have anything else. We we you know burgeoning society still quite um, segmented. We we're so far from uh, the rest of the world. You know, people really really struggling and looking for something to inspire them. And the two things that sort of happened was there was a horse which is actually from New Zealand called Farlap. Is an incredible racehorse. You know, obviously in Australia we're huge on 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 racehorses. Probably as you know, as far as lionising individual horses, I don't think there's another country on earth that does it like Australia. And the other thing was Bradman. And I think the difference between Farlap and Bradman was that Bradman directly went up against the English right at a time when I think Australia was sort of breaking free of 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 you know that sort of that sort of colonial rule. Australian accents were getting stronger and stronger. Uh, you know, it's a really interesting time, and and he he was an incredible batsman. And uh, you know, I had this argument once with um uh, with a couple of English cricketers not that long ago. We were talking; they were t- they were basically saying to me, "Look, if I bowled WG Grace, I'd get him out every ball." And and I said, "You're right. I mean, you would. There's no way he wouldn't be able to handle your pace. He wouldn't be able to ha- handle the seam movement. Uh, he wouldn't be able to handle the the modern day um bounce of the wickets because obviously, you know, when Grace played, they didn't have wickets of that sort of um, quality. So Grace would struggle with all of that. But you have to understand that there was one particular year where Grace made more hundreds than all of uh, the rest of first-class cricket combined. That's how much better Grace was than everyone else he played with. And he also invented forward play and back play. Before that, players either went forward or went back. They didn't go on the ball. And, 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 he, and big... he also, Jared, he, if he got out, he used to put his bails back on and say, they've come to watch me play, I'm staying here. So that probably inflated his average a little bit, didn't it? But it's also part it, of the legend. It certainly helped his average, but he could do that because of how much better he was than, than yeah. everyone else you know he was at that level Bradman is a similar thing so you know Indians will say to me well he never he never really played in Asia so he wasn't tested and I was like I think he averaged 130 against India um against Indian cricket in a day when pitches were actually much more suitable to spin outside of Asia and also India was much more like an associate nation at that point they you know they struggled when they first came into cricket as test cricket as Pretty much everyone does, except for Pakistan, who had a bit of a head start. But most countries do struggle, in, you know, in those earlier days. The best way to look at Bradman is he played in probably the best batting era there has ever been. Uh, we had so many players in his era that averaged over 50. And we also had George Headley, obviously, who was over 60. And yet he was still 40% better than the next player. That doesn't happen. So the only player that I can kind of think of uh, that has ever managed to do that is probably Viv Richards in one-day cricket. Yeah. Where if you look at his average and his strike rate, he probably was closer, you know, 25, 30, 40% better than, than the next best player at that point. And, uh, and even then, he wasn't, he wasn't as dominant in, in one day cricket as Bradman was in, in test cricket. So when you factor in all those things, all that there was many other good players out there and there's some good bowling attacks and they tried different things. They tried, they tried short pitch bowling, you know, they tried making more sporting wickets. He just was a, uh, an absolute phenom. And I don't think there's an era had he grown up in, he wouldn't have been special in. But he ch- I think he very much changed the way that batting actually went about. And he probably also helped evolve bowling a little bit as well because teams actually had to start thinking. So we talk about cricket as this really conservative game. But I love the fact that one of the first ever times of video analysis ever used was you know before Bodyline when they looked at footage over and over again in the in the long room at Lords of Bradman you know it, it, for the next fifty years it didn't even happen that much in cricket and now it's a sort of a thing that every sport in the world does so he was so good he almost dragged sport forward to be able to stop him and you know I I always think that you always have to look at yeah you have to look at how much better a player was than the other players in their era to to really guide you know to guide you and he was on on a different level. 
And I would say other than Imran Khan in the 80s, and he only did this for about a decade, Imran Khan, there's never been a player who's basically been worth two great at one time. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. So, and he, he was... Um, yeah. He was the person that Borderline was invented to try and try and stop, wasn't yeah. it? And you know, I, I mentioned before when I was working at Yorkshire, I used to write for the kind of pro, the programs and what have you. And I looked through who'd scored the most runs at Headingley, and it wasn't an Englishman; it was Don Bradman. And I think that's still the case. You know, he got triple century yeah. there in a day. It was just every single ground probably around the world has got similar kind of issues with Don Bradman that he he comes in every now and again, but scores more runs than anybody does, else does in the in, intervening period. Yeah, just it's an incredible. Uh, I don't even want to say athlete, but his ability to, you know, read a situation and do what what was required every time. And he also, you had that sort of Michael Jordan, you know, if, if you're watching the, the Last Dance, the Netflix um, thing, you know, I, I'm a basketball fan. There are a lot of incredible athletes in the world and there are a lot of um, inc- uh, very good athletes who have, you know, the ability to sort of drag themselves up and do everything right. And then there are, you know, a very small percentage who, who that's all that matters to them is that, that next run that next shot whatever it is and I think Bradman was one of those and he came up with a style and a demeanor and uh, probably I would say it would be involved with his living habits as well I mean he was just such an incredible cricketer on so many different ways and you know not particularly the nicest person on earth you'd probably much rather have a beer with Keith Miller or many of the other guys on this particular list but that that all led to him being so much better than anyone else and you know just a quick aside George Headley you read the stories about George Headley, what an incredible batsman he was. And he averaged 40 less in the same era that Bradman did, or, you know, 30 odd less. To me, that, that just tells you what, uh, you know, what an incredible player Bradman was. I try not to get through a podcast, Jared, without mentioning my book, um, following in the, on in the footsteps of uh, Cricketing Fathers. And there's a chapter in there about Don Bradman because his son actually changed his name from Bradman to mm. Brad's son just to get rid of the... He went to parties, he went out, and all people ever spoke to him about was, how's your dad? What's your dad doing? Blah, 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 blah. No interest in him whatsoever. So he ended up having to kind of retreat from that life and changed his name to a different name. Yeah, and his granddaughter's become a opera singer, I think, yes. or a famous... Yeah, Greta, yeah. yes. Yeah, quite, I'm just bringing that up because it's quite random. But yeah, I think there was there's certainly... I don't know if this happens in New Zealand as well, but there's certainly a big thing in Australia with the sort of famous son. Because, maybe because it's a slightly smaller sporting environment. Maybe because we've also, Australia and New Zealand, perhaps because of their populations or just because of the way their sports work, they tend to have a lot of father-son combinations come through um, and brothers and grandfathers in, in the chapel's case. So it, it, it's actually a really, really interesting thing looking at the way that like a lot of famous sons have really struggled um, to, to handle that. In, in Australia, um, which doesn't seem to be as much the case in, in New Zealand, for instance. But I, I don't know what the difference is and, and how it all works. But it, I can see why, if you were Bradman's son, you would want to change your name. It makes perfect sense to me. Well, Don Bradman absolutely, definitely, unanimously goes into the hat. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening to the Cricket Badger podcast. The listeners are going up every single week through COVID-19. Hopefully, we're giving you a little bit of entertainment to take you away from the troubles in the world. Thank you very much for listening. Loads of great guests planned for the next few weeks as well. So stay tuned to Cricket Badger podcast. Like, subscribe. Thank you so much for your support of the Cricket Badger podcast. Jared, your second nomination. Uh, my second no- nomination is Bill O'Reilly. So a similar era so far where uh, we're basically talking about, you know, the 30s and 40s. Uh, Bill O'Reilly is not, I think because of Shane Warne, 
Uh, people don't talk about Bill O'Reilly as much as they should, but I think he was the original great leg spinner. Probably bowled a little bit more like what we would think Anil Kumble did, although spun it a little bit more than Anil Kumble, but incredible line and length. And the stories I love about Bill O'Reilly, uh, other than the fact that him and Bradman spent most of their time kind of openly despising each other, but the stories I love is that no batsman could get on top of him. You know, he had that ability that, you know, I suppose um, Sid Barnes had before him of you could, you could stay into him uh, at, at times, but you could never actually dominate him. And again, he didn't play against Asian batsmen, which is, a, you know, uh, certainly not enough, which is a real shame because it would have been great to see Bill O'Reilly in those um, uh, environments. I think Asia would have probably, he, he would have been close to unplayable because he did bowl that fast, medium, proper spin. He had incredible control. He was a, a huge competitor. And you don't get many leg spinners with a bowling average in the low 20s. Um, so his bowling average is better than Warren's. I played before and after the war. Uh, you know, just a, a brilliant uh, player. Went on to be a very interesting thinker on the game as well. And uh, unfortunately for him, played in an era where Miller was there, Neil Harvey was there, uh, Don Bradman was there. A lot of very, very big cricketers he played in, in the very same era. as. But I think, you know, looking at Bill O'Reilly's record, um, I ter- I certainly you can't throw any shade on him. Um, and sadly for him, you know, the most famous Bill O'Reilly now is a racist American. But, you know, there's not much you can do about that. <laughs> 27 test matches for Bill O'Reilly. He took 144 test match wickets at an average of 22.59. And I know they didn't score as quickly back then, but his economy rate of under two is still pretty impressive, isn't it? So Bill O'Reilly definitely goes into the hat. You say they openly despise each other, Bradman and O'Reilly. What, I, I didn't know that. What's, what's the story behind that? Uh, in those days, there was a huge rivalry between the Protestant cricketers and the Catholic cricketers. Um, you know, you can probably take a guess which side O'Reilly was on. Uh, or can you? Is that a Catholic name? I, I would imagine he's Not Catholic. Even... Yeah, it sounds, sounds yeah. pretty Irish descent, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I, as I said that, I was like, wait a minute, am I right? Yeah, I am right. <laughs> aren't I? And so, you know, there was a lot of divisions within that team, um, the Invincibles, but also before in the 1930s. O'Reilly and Bradman uh, were at each other's throats. There was quite a few other players uh, that did that did similar things. I think sort of towards the late 1940s, it all sort of petered out a little bit. A bit after, sorry, I should say after um, the Invincibles tour, I think it started to peter out, but that might just be because Bradman wasn't there. But there was a, a thought that the Protestant players didn't treat the Catholic players correctly. Um, you know, that thought might have come from the Catholic players. So I don't know how much of it was true. But yeah, that, that was certainly, it, it's quite interesting that you don't know about that. But the other one is, you know, more modern times, obviously Gilchrist and Shane Warne, uh, they were massively uh, antagonistic towards each other. Well, mostly Warne towards Gilchrist. So there, there has been, and you know, there's also the Kim Hughes era uh, of Australian cricket. So there's been quite a few times when the Australian team has despised each other and yet still gone on to play pretty decent cricket and sometimes uh, great cricket. But yeah, Bill O'Reilly was, I think he was the loudest uh, dissenter against Bradman. Him and Bradman did not get on particularly well if I'm remembering uh, that. And I think because Bill O'Reilly was so good. I mean, it's sad that he only played 27 tests because he, you know, his peak probably would have been during World War II. Uh, He started playing in the early 1930s. As a leg spinner, you would have thought his age would have uh, would have been uh, ideal to be playing in, in that time. And uh, just one last thing on Bill O'Reilly. His first-class bowling average is 16. Crazy, isn't it? 
Absolutely crazy. Very, very fine nomination. I'm going to move on to my second nomination. And it might, might surprise if you might not do, but Damien Martin is one of my favourite players to watch of all time. He spent uh, a season at Yorkshire where I was uh, watching from the terraces at that stage and just mesmerised by the way he played through the offside. He, he scored a double century against Gloucestershire in a county championship match where it was one of those where, you know, when you're a kid and you've got your new bat, you're in front of the mirror and you're making that little clicking sound as you you're shadow batting and, and absolutely belting the ball to all corners of the ground well Damien Martin was doing that but in real life against good bowling and he was absolutely serene that day covered drives just all the way along the ground they were packing the offside but he would just find the gaps at will he scored at 200 I think the second century came in well under a runner ball but he never seemed to take any risks he just played it all along the floor I think a couple of sixes but nothing too dramatic and it was just absolutely purely beautiful batting he just had a a lovely technique I don't think he quite gets the praise that maybe he would deserve because he played in an era amongst some very very fine batsmen but you look at his test record 67 test matches for Australia he averaged at 46.37 which is not too shabby at all he made 1323 50s Damien Martin for me he goes into the hat as one of my nominations I loved watching him play yeah, he's a very. I think the reason he doesn't get credit is because he obviously started very young and was supposed to be the next big thing. He was supposed to be the Australian captain, you know, well before you know Ponting was kind of uh, ever mentioned. In fact, you know, had everything gone Damian Martin's way, uh, he might have been become captain, and Steve Orr might not have become captain. But he was. He obviously had that incredible test um, against South Africa uh, when Australia were chasing, you know, not much more than a hundred runs, and finally the Villiers uh, basically rolled them. And he was the last recognised batsman out. He was caught at cover a point, I think, off the top of my head, um, trying to smash the ball away, which he kind of had to do at that point and was completely blamed for the loss. And he went into a real, look, I don't want to put words into his mouth, but I'm, I'm pretty sure he, he was suffering depression. Uh, he got dropped from the Western Australian side. He became, I think, a travel agent, almost lost to the game entirely. And then... Uh, sort of in the late 90s, uh, you know, had a bit of a renaissance with Western Australia, was brought back into the team. That's very different than a lot of these other guys. You know, obviously, we've talked about a couple of players who've lost years for their war. But, you know, there's there's a lot of players that you, ha- you know, that you haven't nominated or the both of us haven't nominated that probably had more longer and more complete con- careers. Yeah. You know, so someone like David Boone probably doesn't average that much lower than Damian Martin. And when you factor in, he probably bolt- played in a, in a tougher era when it comes to the pitches um, as well, Boone. Um, but Boone was in the side, you know, from a fairly young man all the way through to a very, you know, a much older man. Whereas Damian Martin sort of came in, disappeared for a long time and came back. And it wasn't, you know, and when I say disappeared, he wasn't like Justin Langer and Matthew Hayden and Matthew Elliott, and Martin Love and Stuart Law. He wasn't smashing first class, uh, you know, attacks around. He was literally gone. But from a purely aesthetic point of view, he'd have to be in the top sort of handful of um, the prettiest batsmen that Australia have ever had. The, you know, Neil Harvey and Greg Chappell, both. Um, out and out greats as well, uh, right up there. Uh, the ability of Damien Martin to time a ball without really moving. Him and VVS Laxman sort of came along in a similar era. And they, you know, they both have the ability to defend a ball through covers for four. And there's that, you know, the Ro Belinda video that he put up, which I think is one of the most popular videos he's ever put up on Twitter. It's just Damien Martin's shot. And, you know, for me, I think he could have been, you know, I, I almost look at him as a cricketer that could have been far greater than he was. I don't, you know, I, you know the story of him basically retiring mid-series uh, because he wasn't feeling it. It, it. You know, he's a very interesting human being, I think. Uh, at one stage, here's a fun fact, at one stage, 
Donald Trump used to follow him on Twitter. Um, <laughs> so he, he is an interesting guy, Damien Martin. I've had some run-ins with him over the years, back before I was involved in cricket. Um, uh, as a fan and also I used to work for an airline so we used to deal with him at times not he's a very prickly sort of person purely on aesthetic I think he was incredible and he also had that period I can't remember how many did he score 400 in four tests or was it 404 innings or something when he was on his game he was about as good as any batsman um, that there has ever been but he didn't have the sort of mental stuff that we're talking about with Don Bradman that we'll probably mention when we get to uh, Ricky Ponting I don't think he had that other parts of him but aesthetically and as pure batsman then he is uh, certainly one of the greatest players that Australia has ever had I think other players like Steve War have just made more of their uh, slightly lesser gifts than Damian Martin did certainly that double century he scored for Yorkshire that day it's the best innings I've ever seen live it was just it was just poetry motion beautiful beautiful batsman when he was in flow it's that badger style Thanks to Jared Kimber for joining me on this first part of this hashtag Goat Cricketer Australian Test Special. I'm going to put them out together. So if you've listened to this one, you will also know that there is another one there, part two. So uh, turn me off, stick that one on, and listen to the rest of our chat about the greatest Australian Test cricketers of all time. Podcast Network.